If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code twelve twelve and get forty dollars off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code twelve twelve. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number two of the World According to Zig podcast for this July 30th, 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show, which is one of the very few places where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. This being hour number two, normally that means we get to speak to a uh, very special guest, and we've been on a really good roll with regard to the, the guests. I hope you heard last week's hour number two. It might have been the best ever. Uh, that was a very fascinating interview with radio talk show star Glenn Beck, obviously the founder of The Blaze and one of the few, if only, conservative media stars who did not sell out to Donald Trump. So I urge you to take a listen to the July 23rd, 2017 World According to Zig podcast for hour number two. Uh, that uh, interview was, I think, met with uh, a lot of people saying, wow. Uh, That's some really interesting stuff and stuff that we will not hear anywhere else. And it's really the reason why this podcast exists. So check it out if you have not done so already. This week will be different, but could be just as interesting, maybe even more so, because we're going to be joined by one of the few stars of the pro-Trump movement who is actually willing to come on. We've had Very limited success in this area. We did speak to Bill Mitchell, pro-Trump superfan, on Twitter, and that didn't go particularly well as Bill hung up on us after about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes after not even being remotely provoked or being treated rudely or anything, just really exposed himself as the total fraud that he is. Tommy Laren, uh, who uh, formerly of the Bra- Blaze, uh, about whom uh, we made some news last week because Glenn Beck responded to uh, her firing from the Blaze in very open and honest fashion that a lot of people latched on to, including TMZ. Imagine that, TMZ latching on to a story about a hot babe and a conservative media star getting into a spat. That really was shocking. But Tommy Lahren, she originally agreed to be on this podcast, and then after I criticized her for uh, the way she handled her firing or whatever she was upset about, I don't know, she decided that 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 made me unworthy of coming on the podcast. So I don't hold out much hope for Tommy Lahren to actually come on this show. However, 
another very, very high-profile pro-Trump person, Milo Iannopoulos, who is out with a brand-new book called Dangerous, has agreed to come on the show. And even though uh, there was a little bit of difficulty in getting him on, he's, I actually spoke to him earlier this week, and we had a very nice conversation. And I know a lot of people are going to be expecting me and Milo to get into a knockdown, drag-out slugfest. And there may be some of that. I actually hope there will be some. But that's not the real intent of this interview to me. Uh, you know, we are very strong personalities. We actually have some things in common and other things very much not in common. But uh, we're both definitely hated, that's for sure, by some of the same people. So that's interesting and potentially good. But my goal here is to understand Milo. I find him to be interesting, infuriating, uh, and emblematic uh, of a lot of things I think are wrong uh, with our broken national dialogue, but there are also some things about him that I like. So for those of you, by the way, who are big fans of the podcast, you may recall that we've talked about Milo before when we had one of my good friends, Larry Wilmore, the comedian on, who had gotten into a big fight with Milo uh, when Milo was on Bill Maher's HBO show. You may recall this moment. You can go fuck yourself, all right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I feel like this is going to be a very interesting situation uh, because of the fact that I, I am uh, in many ways conflicted and uh, have conflicting loyalties with regard to uh, our guests. So with that being said, uh, I think uh, this could be and hopefully will be a very, very interesting interview. So without further ado, here is the author of Dangerous, a man the left loves to hate and who seems to be one who loves to be hated himself, Milo Iannopoulos. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. I don't like it as much as everybody says I do. Well, maybe I do. <laughs> well, judging from the chapter headings of your book, all of which relate to who hates me, um, it's kind of hard not to conclude that, isn't it, Milo? I suppose so. I mean, I, I, I kind of think controversy is foisted upon me by politically correct society. I just like to think of myself as a truth teller, but I'm, I'm sure you will have uh, your own opinion about that. Well, you know, I wanted to talk about the book first, but since you raised that issue, let's get right into that, because that's probably my primary concern about you. And, my, and the purpose of this interview, from my perspective, is I want to understand you, because I find you to be interesting. I think you're a well, smart. You. I think too. you're a smart. I, no, no. Let's be serious. I'm going to be very straightforward about this. I think All you're right. smart. I think you're funny. Uh, I think that it is great that you take on political correctness. However, what I I think you just said, based upon my current perception, and I'm open-minded enough to correct myself if I get new information and turn out to be wrong. I don't mm -hmm. agree. I don't agree with what you just said because I think you love controversy. I think you. <laughs> I think you love the attention, and I think you love the money that comes your way because of it. Why am I wrong? Well, I think you're perhaps reading a little coquettish British irony uh, a little too straight. Of course, of course, I love attention. Who doesn't love attention? Um, and you know, I have been quite successful in drawing attention to myself, and 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 through doing so to what I perceive to be the hypocrisies of, of political correctness in America. Um, and I've been very grateful and happy to amass such a big fan base doing it. But the primary um, object of my attention seeking is always the issues. Um, but yes, of course, of course, I love it. Who doesn't? See, I, and, and that might be the, the primary issue I have here is what is Milo's intent? See, if I thought your intent was, you know what, I'm going to create this character that's going to create more good than bad 
uh, for the culture in the long run. And I'm gonna sh- I'm gonna jump on some hand grenades and I'm gonna take some bullets. Uh, but mm. in the end, it's gonna be positive for the culture, for the country, for the cause. I'd be all on board. But see, well, that's I- precisely how I see myself, and precisely what I think I'm doing. And it's, it's precisely also, by the way, how I see the president. Well, we're going to talk about Trump because you and I are not you and I are not going to agree on Trump. But I, just, but, I, just, I laid that one down for you. Yeah, well, let's let's not get ahead of ourselves. All right. Sorry. Okay. So so now that we've kind of set the predicate here, let's go to the book for a second because the book sure. obviously has created a lot of controversy because this began as a book that was going to be published by Simon and Schuster, and then yeah. there was the whole controversy over you allegedly, which we're going to get into allegedly. Uh, saying that a febophilia, by the way, not pedophilia, that a febophilia might not be that bad based upon your own experience. And now you're suing Simon & Schuster, and now you've published the book on its own, and it's doing very well, remarkably well, on a lot of uh, the bestseller lists. Talk to us about the evolution of the book from the time Simon & Schuster signed you to do it to it now becoming published. Sure. I mean, I used to sort of laugh a little bit at conservatives, um, so Republicans, these wealthy, well-connected right-wingers in America constantly whining about how difficult it was to be right-wing in America and what a terrible time they had of it and how unfair it was and all the rest of it. But I now have to eat my words and admit that they were right. And perhaps the conservative who's had the worst time of it of all is me because, you know, the bestseller lists are being gerrymandered to keep me further down the list. Um, I couldn't get a publisher to stick to the deal we made with them because they caved to left-wing pressure. And then I had to invest millions of dollars of money, you know, into, uh, into a, a new publishing venture just to get my book out and then hopefully in the future to get many, many more similar such books out there into the wild. And this is a, um, an extraordinary indictment of a country that I came you know, to, to visit as a European imagining to be some sort of uh, oasis, some kind of utopia of expression, of free expression, where people could be do and say anything, I get here and I discover that actually Orwell got it wrong. The government's not the problem. The government's too incompetent to really do you any damage, um, as, except perhaps if you consider universities to be the branch of government, but they're so corporatized these days. Really, the problem is just as, is just as, is just as prevalent in the private sector. Americans aren't being oppressed by the government. They're being oppressed by each other, um, you know, by extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily complex, well-developed um, and wealthy Private institutions, whether it's social media or lobbying groups, the media, constantly cracking down on what, what is acceptable to say, what jokes it's acceptable to make, what words it's okay to use. And my, the, the, the journey of getting this book published, the fight I've had on my hands just to get a book that, by the way, is, is not particularly outrageous. It's me at my most substantial and serious. It's a very reasonable book, um, and the reviews are astonishingly good. Uh, and as you as you say, thank you. Um, it's doing it's doing amazingly well on the bestseller charts, despite the fact that the New York Times, for instance, just this week puts me at number five uh, behind a book that I outsold two to one. You know, on sales on sales, I was six thousand ahead of ahead of the, the, the book the book they put in position one. I should clearly have been number one. There are all kinds of attempts to suppress the success of the book, um, and I have to say that you know it, the conservatives that <laughs> I used to scoff at are absolutely right um, for having the wrong opinions in America. You can be uh, cast out of polite society, you can be, you can have your job imperiled, you can have your social uh, social life uh, thrown into chaos, you can have your relationship 
um, destroyed. And all of these things um, are actually perfectly true and, and not for having outrageous opinions, for having perfectly reasonable, respectable opinions that lie well within the conservative mainstream. As New York, uh, New York Magazine admits, everything in my book does. So I have to, you know, the, the journey of writing this book and how difficult it was to get it published is sort of the reason I wrote it in the first place. But I had no idea until I finished the manuscript just what a struggle it was going to be. See, this is why, or one of the many reasons why I'm conflicted about you, Milo, because I agree with like about 90% of what you just said. But the, yeah. the part about you implying that you are oppressed is a bit of a lark. I mean, here, I mean, you... you... Well, not re- well, not really. I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but if, if, if the entire media and publishing industry were not implacably opposed to the success of this book, it would have sold 10 or 100 times as many copies. How do you know that? Could... How do you know that? Look, if... Based on what? Uh, there's, a, there's a mailing... Look, look just, just two days ago, I was forwarded a paid mailing list, which is the, the mailing list that all of the publishers, editors, and agents in the New York publishing industry are on. And in that mailing list, you can see this on my Facebook page, this explicit, the editors of this list explicitly say we are enthusiastically part of the media effort to suppress the success of Mylianopolis is dangerous. They put it, they are so brazen about it, they put it in writing. People love this book, and Middle America would love this book if they ever heard about it. This is a New York Times bestseller that's had no mainstream media interviews. I haven't been on TV once. Right. Who, what kind of an extraordinary, and look, I don't use the word conspiracy lightly, but journalists have used that to me privately about why nobody will cover this book. That is suppression. Well, well, it is one of the most interesting books of the year, and nobody will cover it. Well, it's very, of course, if I had had, let's just say, for instance, the sort of lavish media attention showered on far less talented people like Lena Dunham and Amy Schumer, this book would have sold a million copies already. I don't know if that's any of that's true. I, I do know that the, the, a lot of what you're saying about the way book sales are judged is accurate and that there's no question there's an anti-conservative bias. However, let me, let me give you the cynical view of this, this whole sure. book situation and why I don't think you're oppressed. First of all, we don't have a constitutional right in this country to have our books published by Simon & Schuster, all right? You know that. You're a smart guy. But it's not a free speech case. It's a a contract case. They broke a contract when they had no right to do so. No, I'm not not referring to your law. Simon & Schuster's got nothing to do with free speech. No, no, I'm not referring to your your lawsuit against Simon & Schuster. I'm not an expert on whether or not you have a case against them or not. I haven't seen your contract with them. What I'm referring to is this idea that somehow you're being oppressed. Okay, and so I mean, you have a—you've already referenced a. No, multi- I'm not person—I'm not personally oppressed because I have money and because I have a media career. But what I'm trying to demonstrate through the challenges of publishing my work, and I'm very happy with the, the professional success I've had. I'm not a victim. Okay. But I am trying to demonstrate through the challenges I've had that I would not have had if my opinions were left-wing. What ordinary right. Americans go through in their daily lives. I and agree. that is oppression. I, I agree with the first part of that. But let's let me just go forward with my, my cynical view here. And and because sure. I'm very cynical of all media types and especially conservative media types, because I believe that the conservative media <laughs> No, seriously, I mean, because having lived it for twenty some years. <laughs> nice that you admit your biases. We can have a real conversation. No, no, I no. like that. I know these people. I mean, you and I have, <laughs> have, have, have I mean Look, I don't like them any more than you do, let's no, be honest. No, they don't like me any more than they like anyone else. I mean I, they, 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 they I understand, but if you let me my point here is having dealt with these people for a long period of time, I know what a racket 
the conservative media is. It's a bunch of, a bunch of frauds trying to make money and get attention and keep a career going who, who really don't care about the cause, don't really care that much about the truth, and the whole Trump phenomenon proved it. So that's where I'm coming from. You're not going to agree with oh, all I, that. Well, I, no, I, no, I don't, because I think actually it's the establishment, and, and neither does the country, by the way. You're completely out of step with the whole of America with that point of view. Uh, I mean, Trump's I election is an expression of the country's suspicion, not with the populist, nationalist, insurgent kind of conservatism that you just claimed was um, so cynic, so driven, so driven so cynically. You know, um, actually, the country and I believe that it's the establishment Republicans, it's the think tanks, it's the billions of dollars being poured into useless, pointless places like the American Enterprise Institute, and you know, and all the, all these pointless think tanks in Washington and pointless magazines that no one reads. And, you know, and, and the establishment Republicans who are, in fact, the cynical people who don't re- reflect the views or, or the needs or the priorities of ordinary Americans, who won't talk about immigration, even though it's putting Americans out of, out of work and driving wages down, who won't talk about the things that, that Trump's voters care about and put him in office to fix. Now, the efficacy of you know, how well he's doing it at, at that is, is not the issue. It's very clear to the rest of America, but apparently not to you, that the exact opposite is the case when it comes to Republican media personalities. Okay. It is the establishment types. It is the National Review Ben Shapiro types who seem to change their opinion depending on who cut their check that year. <laughs> and it is the populist okay. nationalist. I'm, I'm, this is what, this is, I'm telling you, this is what the country believes and what I believe. You're in, in, a, in, a, in a tiny minority. Yeah, the the minority is that, often right, Milo, as you know. I mean, especially when well, it's an it, educated minority. No, but okay, I. I I, my goal here is a tiny minority. If you believe that the right. that, look, look at what look at what we've got, look at what we've gone through. What what is the what is the motivation for people like Steve Bannon to have their their lives, their relationships, their friendships destroyed permanently? I mean, look, the guy can't <laughs> Steve Bannon is the senior advisor guard. to the president of the United States. What's his incentive? <laughs> and, look, and look what and look what's <laughs> happened. Look what's happened to his reputation. Ah, he loves it. it. He's never oh, been happier. On. Come off. I mean, you know, well, maybe with Steve, he probably does enjoy a little bit, like I, a little bit. But, but, let's be, but let's be clear about what's happened to ordinary Americans who believe right. the same okay. things, right? right? They see their opinions reflected in public figures like me and Trump and Bannon and called white supremacists or white okay. nationalists or racist or sexist or homophobic, okay. and that isn't true. Okay. And if you look at the personal sacrifices that you have to make in order to be to be a Trump supporter in public, in the entertainment industry, career yes. destroyed. In publishing, career destroyed. Media, career oh, hold destroyed. On, Academia, Milo. career destroyed. Milo, you that's not. Hold on a second. Oddity your Trump, Trump support. Supporter. Hold on, Milo. I'm going to call bullshit. Your your okay. Trump your Trump support is the only reason why your career is where it is. I mean, if you had gone, if you had gone against Trump, you wouldn't have the Mercer money behind you right now. No one would care about your book because you wouldn't be on Breitbart, and, and and it would be over for you. It's your Trump support that's keeping you going. That, I understand that you've been reading uh, BuzzFeed reports on fishing expeditions about where my money comes from, but nobody knows where my money comes oh, well, from. Well, let's be clear um, about I that. Are you getting are you getting money from the Mercers or not? We don't comment on our investors. Okay, have, so you are. Many, All right, that's I fine. Many, I have, no, I didn't say that. I, we have many wealthy people who are interested in this in this cause, and I personally, I'm very. I'm not, I'm not part of the, you know, of the Trump inner circle. I've barely ever met the guy, and I'm not Trump part of, you know, of that. So, I never know, said you were or business or politics circle. But um, what I did, uh, Steve, I did Steve Bannon make your did, did Steve Bannon help you help your career substantially, Milo? 
Yes, of course he does. Okay. Boy, All right. And so, and he's the senior right, advisor to the spoken, president. I haven't spoken. And the Mercers, who you're not denying, you're not denying that the Mercers are funding you. So, and they're the biggest Trump supporters that they are. Had you gone so against what Trump, we don't, what I said is we don't. We don't talk okay, about. You didn't deny it, which is a perfectly reasonable position. That's fine, but you didn't deny it. So I have to presume that it's at least partially true. So we have. Bannon make, we have Bannon making your career. We have the Mercers do. likely funding you. And we have the fact that your audience loves Trump. So if you had gone against Trump, you would be done. And you know that, Milo. You're a smart no, guy. I no, I don't know that because, I, I, look, you could argue that the only reason that I have a sort of countercultural, insurgent, interesting, you know, dissident, mischievous career is that I have... Um, through a luck of, you know, biography and, and how I've how I've arrived at, at my political and cultural beliefs, you know, concorded with a with a populist nationalist uprising in America. But you could make just as strong, and I would say a far stronger argument that somebody with my skills and my talents, my unique combination of of, um, uh, of abilities as an entertainer, would be making ten times as much if I were liberal. And I think that's I've, a much stronger I've argument. I've not I denied that. a far stronger argument. I agree and, with that. You know, just because I, I've managed, in my view, despite all the odds, to carve out a media career, despite the entire, every industry I want to go into hating me. I'm making inroads anyway. But I have a TV show now by now if I were a liberal. So I, I, I agree. Just find it prepo- I just find it preposterous. I agree, that but that's speak. not the standard, Milo. I agree with what you're saying. See, this is, again, why I'm so conflicted about Milo. Because that's correct. What you just said there is a true statement, and it needs to be known. Well, everything that it's a- I say is, darling. Well, and I'm I'm not sure about that because I mean you, you know where you you know where you've lost me so far in this, and I'm very open minded about you is when you tried to claim that I'm wrong because my position isn't popular. You should know damn right well that popularity means nothing with regard to truth, and in fact, in this bizarre no, world, world, actually, no, it's probably the opposite. I actually don't believe that. Um, I don't believe. I I really don't. I think you know, time and time again, you know the the. Uh, elite consensus is proven utterly wrong, and the people are proven right. Whether it's Brexit, wow. whether it's you know, the, I, 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 no, because because we differ on we differ on this. This is a fundamental, you know, this is a worldview thing. I'm a pop, I am a sort of populist nationalist guy. I do right, believe that's that where the, the money is. Can, that's no, where the money no, is. That's where the fame is. On the right, that's where the money and the fame is right now. No, 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 no. Absolutely. Within absolutely the right. Wrong. Within the right. Oh, come off it. You've yeah. got three or four little upstarts right. with little audiences versus the billions of dollars being poured into think tanks in Washington, D.C. You're out of your mind. No. You, you think that you think the conservative money is behind Trump? You're no, crazy. No, as a media star, you have to be pro-Trump or you have no oxygen, no ability Megan to Kelly sell got anything. An NBC show by yeah. being. And how does that working out for her? And how's that she, working out? Her ratings are terrible. She, she screwed it up, but she got the show by going right. against Trump. But you, that's actually proving your prior point, which I agree with, which is that if you sell out to the left, you as a media person, you're doing much better for yourself. However, if you decide right, to, to remain plausibly no. But if you but if you decide to remain plausibly right, which you have done uh, with your Trump support and everything that surrounds that, then plausibly you're all right. I like that. I'm going to use that as my next tour name. Plausibly right. <laughs> well, I don't know what the hell conservative means anymore, Milo. I mean, neither does anybody else. I mean, what, it's I mean, great. What, I love it. What, what we're does, just having this wonderful new realignment, which is fantastic. What is what does conservative really mean to you, we, Milo? What what does it mean to you to be a conservative? What does that mean? I think there's um, 
and this is part of why I believe in the wisdom of crowds, because it's not, I don't, it's not just about the crowds. It, as a Brit, I, I think perhaps I come to, to politics where I care about politics at all with an appreciation for the value of institution of history. So, for instance, you know, sometimes things like the monarchy that make absolutely no logical sense whatsoever work better than anything else. Sometimes, you know, church, you know, church and some of the other kind of civil institutions of society just work better than everything else. I mean, look at, look at the, you know, Mark Zuckerberg now saying he wants to recreate what the church did for local communities on Facebook because he's realized that, you know, the, 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 the sort of globalist social media effect on culture has been, has been negative and we need to reintroduce some of those old local uh, ties to people. I believe in, you know, in, in the importance of institution of history um, and in the in the in the wisdom of, of you know of, of stuff like that, and that's part of like sort of cultural conservatism as a Brit and as a monarchist and all the rest of it, and it's a sort of natural, instinctive, habitual resistance to change for its own sake that I think is at the at the absolute heart of almost all kinds of conservatism. Now you can take that and you can spiral, you can spin it up into the National Review and the AEI, you know, free market kind of conservatism, which a lot of voters are rejecting. Or you can take that a different way, and it becomes a sort of populist, nationalist nation-state as the basis of happiness, flourishing, and success. There are lots of different ways to go, but I think at the heart of conservatism is an appreciation for, a respect for, a reverence for tradition, family, um, and country, and a respect for the institutions of that, of that country. Like, you know, in your case, the First Amendment um, and the Office of the President. In my case, you know, the... the let's say, the, the monarchy and the Church of England. I think that's at the heart of what it means to be a conservative. And I think as weird and as peculiar and as splintered as the as fractured as the American right is, you can still see that in all that they, in, in all that they do and in all corners of it. You know, there, Except a, for who our president is, because there's no nothing in that <laughs> definition you just gave is remotely linked to Donald Trump. Nothing! Well, well I think if you, if, you, if you imagine him as a sort of... I like to think of him as a kind of perfect um, representation of America in so many ways. You know, the guy, the guy is sort of so unashamed and unabashed about his wealth and success and status. Oh. He's so brazen about the way he expresses and communicates himself. He's a capitalist red in, you know, tooth and claw. He's, uh, you know, he's a, he's a, he expresses himself however he wants. I mean, that's what I think of when I think of America as a European. I think of, you know, I think of... <laughs> well, no, you have yeah, a really I, dim view of America. <laughs> but I don't, I don't happen to think it is. Um, I think that people look at, and many voters did. I mean, look, look at the peculiar affinity that Trump has with working class voters. And it reminds me of back home, the, the particular affinity that the upper classes of the aristocracy have for the working classes, because they sort of understand each other. And it's the middle classes where feminism lives, the media lives, and college professors live. It doesn't understand the top and the bottom. There's a peculiar kind of affinity that you wouldn't imagine somebody who lives in, you know, who, who brags about his plane having gold seatbelt buckles. Why somebody, you know, who's been put out of work at a factory would vote for a guy like that or would relate to him? Well, I think that when you understand that link, that's, that is what uh, is, is central to understanding America. And it's why he's present. It's why people like him. It is that 
unashamed aspiration, the idea that you can be and do and accomplish anything if only your ambitions are great enough and you work hard enough. Now, <laughs> and, might, and you get might, a big inheritance from your dad and you become a celebrity and the media becomes invested in your success. If all that happens, well, what, yes, you wrong, can be a success with, in America. Congratulations. Well, come on. Look, the, guy was a, the guy was a property developer and he was a He's wealthy property nothing. developer. And he willed himself all the way no, to the Oval didn't. Office. And you're suggesting he's accomplished nothing. He's accomplished Politically. nothing. The guy that's got his name in gold on buildings. That's not an accomplishment. That's a president. fraud. That's a, oh, come that's on. That's a con. He's president of the United States. You no, think he's achieved nothing? He's achieved. If, if that's his greatest achievement, yes, losing by three million popular votes to the horrendous candidate like Hillary Clinton is a hell of an achievement. Congratulations. <laughs> that's a hell of an no, achievement. No, 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 come on. When you look at how the system works. Well, yeah, how the media, how everybody was gunning for it is remarkable, absolutely remarkable. Oh, it's amazing he, he won. Well he it's amazing he so won. It's amazing, it's amazing he <laughs> won. And imagine sure. how much more he'd won by if the media had been covering him fairly, <laughs> if the media had not been completely in the tank for her. Uh-huh. Like, if the media had not been in the tank for her, imagine how much right. more he would have you, you won mean, by. You mean when the media gave him $2 billion in free advertising during the Republican primaries because it was good for ratings? You mean that, you mean that bias against him? <laughs> Well, I, you know, the guy, you call the guy, on, on the one hand, you're giving a guy a ton of free publicity. On the other guy, you know, in the, in the next breath, you're calling him a racist and a white supremacist. I think you could argue for, uh, forever, and I don't think anyone But if really he doesn't the get the nomination, he can't win. More or less votes for a candidate, you know? No, Milo, if he doesn't get the nomination, he can't win the presidency. He had The media gave him the nomination because they thought he'd be good for them uh, because well, he'd make spe- Hillary and win and because he'd be well, great for ratings. That's what happened. Well, they're spectacularly stupid because well, having put the having having idiotically elevated somebody to perhaps uh, you know I, I, to be honest with you, I thought it, I, I firmly and very sincerely believe that with or without the cooperation, if you like, witting or unwitting of the media, he would have got the nomination anyway. Why? Because he was the only candidate talking about things Americans actually cared about, and this is at the heart of Ann Coulter's book, um, and you know, the in Trump we trust, the latest one, where she says, look. Whatever happened, nobody else was talking about stuff that Americans cared about. So they forgive him for everything else. And I think he would have won the nomination regardless. And when he had won the nomination, and you may argue quite persuasively that the media helped him to do so, even if they didn't mean to, they then changed strategy with him and started attacking him with everything they had. And again, because the American media is the stupidest media in the in the world, you know, I, like the lowest IQ, dumbest, yes. most strategically thick, yes. uh, you know, set of left wing activists anywhere in the world. Yes, um, they then changed tack and started uh, covering him in a way that was designed to damage them. Well, it could have been designed to damage them and not him. And you know, it, it almost. Mm. It's all, all, you know, you couldn't really have planned it any better. Uh, if you wanted to elevate him and make him look like a serious and substantial figure and make his critics look ridiculous, you couldn't, have done, you couldn't have done a better job than what the media did in the election. I think that was all very well said. Uh, however, I believe that if uh, Trump was a Democrat and it wasn't in your uh, career best interest to be supporting him, you would be savaging him and his presidency right now because it has been, in my view, a disaster on numerous levels, including, for instance, on gay rights, which you would think that you would care no, that's about. Not, that's absolutely not true. That's absolutely not true. That's absolutely not true. What about first, what Sessions all, just did? What about what Sessions just did, Milo? First of all, you're first of all you're assuming that I'm uh, partisan in a way that that I have no interest in being. I'm not a Republican. I don't care about the Republicans. I hate the Republican Party as much as I hate the, the, sure. the Democrat Party. Fine, no um, problem right? there. 
we're, we're, we're probably united in that. Um, you know, uh, but I like I like Trump. Okay. I don't like that Trump is a Republican. Well, what president. do you I like? like that Trump what, is what, the president. What do you and, like and, you know, about what he has and, done? What do you well, like about what I mean, he has I mean, done? I, I don't care about anything except two issues, and I will forgive him anything else. Just like I think probably all of his voters. One is maybe not the car- maybe not the intention, but the effect of Donald Trump on the First Amendment. The, you know, the fact that he has just r- driven a freight train through. The, the bounds of acceptable He's the one that is, wants to make it illegal for media to be able to, to, to disagree with him. He wants to sue media. What, what, you think he's a First Amendment he th- warrior? He threatened. No, 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 no. I said, I said the effects, not the intention, very purposefully, because some of the stuff he says does sound counterintuitive. But what's the effect <laughs> of Donald Trump? It's, yeah, look, very often the effect, effects are different from intentions. And the effect I agree. Of Donald Trump, okay. Effects. The effect of Donald Trump, in my view, in my observation, has been to liberate many Americans from the strictures of political correctness. Look at how look at the, oh, the left is on the defensive now on college campuses, in the media. This whole call it racist, oh. call it sexist, safe space Wait. trigger warning culture is on the defensive now. For, the primary reason for that, apart from my Collister, of course, is Donald Trump. Now, listen. Whoa, so whoa, whoa. Well, let me stop Donald you, Milo, Milo. We have plenty of time for you to get back to this, but let me, I want to stop you right there because I think you're well, expecting. the gay stuff, too, because it's important. Now, we're going really to get to, we're gonna get to all of it. We're going to get to all of it, but I, wanna, I don't want to lose this point because I think what you just said is contradicted by your own experience. I thought that when Trump, if what you're saying is true, when Trump got elected and political correctness would be pushed back, then you wouldn't have had riots at Berkeley when you were supposed to speak there. Other people wouldn't be having their college campus uh, speeches canceled routinely with virtually no blowback. How, how do you what explain do you, that? No, it's, well, it's, of course, it's obvious what's happening. Someone has, has entered the White House who is an existential threat to political correctness. So but, the forces of political correctness respond but, with every ounce of strength they have. And they're winning. Obviously. You didn't well, speak at Berkeley. Your book, got, Simon Schuster, yeah, got, got not, torpedoed. Are, are, You're are, no are longer they, at Breitbart. How the are hell they, are they not winning? Are they winning? What is the opinion of the ordinary American about uh, about this stuff now? What do you think that, that, that if you were, you know, if you're asking Americans that's always about been what the happened, case. To, that's why part of why Trump ordinary won. Ordinary Americans about what's happening at UC Berkeley. What do you think they say? And when you ask them, would you send your kid now? Now that the, you know, I mean, they, they, now that this is such a high profile issue, you know, mm-hmm. the college campuses really come to a head now, and I was mainly responsible for that um, thanks to my last tour. Now that this this stuff has come to a head and everybody is aware of the issue. What do you think ordinary Americans say about where to send their kids? Let's say you live in Chicago and you want your kids to go to school in Chicago. Well, or I'll take Missouri. Missouri is the best example of what you're talking about. Missouri is getting crushed because of what they did last exactly, year with political correct. Exactly. There are financial, uh, existential consequences to pandering to social justice mm. for, for, for universities now. And I believe that one of the good things about the, about the American higher education system becoming slightly, let's say, corporatized and um, you know, and, 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 and free market flavored is that people are going to start voting with their feet, and they already are. And as you correctly point out, Missouri is a perfect example of the most high-profile school that gave in to the social justice warriors who hate Trump so much. And what's happening to that college? It's, it's going to close. It's going to close because no one is applying there. Well, I don't know about black, that, but I, ho- black, I, I would be no, no, thrilled. No, no. Black, enro- black enrollment has gone down even more than white enrollment at, mm. at, at, at Missouri. Did you know that? I did black not, but I, I hope you're right about the result. Black, applica- black applications to Missouri have gone down more than any other racial group because even black people don't want to go to this right. place that panders to, to Black Lives Matter. That's astonishing. Right, gonna- and we are just at the beginning of seeing the effects 
of what Trump is going to do to political correctness in the media, right. in academia, and in Hollywood. We're just at the beginning of the presidency. We, okay. we don't know anything yet. Uh, I hope you're right about that. By the way, early signs. I hope and, you're right. And we're going to get back to Trump in a second. But before we do, I want to ask you about Berkeley real quick, okay? Because yeah. And this, this goes to the essence of my conflict about you. I believe, and I'm I'm open to being uh, corrected if you can convince me. I believe that when your speech at Berkeley was canceled because of those riots and it made such massive national news, I believe you were thrilled. Am I right? Why wouldn't I be thrilled? Okay. Well, because they proved they proved my point for me. Of course, no, I'm no, but you because the, point, hold on a second. Point that, my point was that it was impossible to uh, to to speak un, you know unfettered um, and 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 uh, without hindrance or harassment at a college as a conservative in America in 2017, and, and that the First Amendment was under threat from all sides. And it was demonstrated perfectly by Berkeley. Why would I not be delighted? By because you weren't allowed to speak. Because you were, your speech because was stifled. I, How is that a victory? Because the, what happened, you're asking, I think, very obtuse questions you know the answers to. <laughs> of course, drawing attention to the suppression of free speech on UC Berkeley, although I didn't happen to speak that particular day to 400 students, 40 million Americans heard about free speech issues on campus, maybe the whole country, right? Mm-hmm. The effect of UC Berkeley was colossal. Um, and the fact that I wasn't able to give one speech at UC Berkeley, yes, that is, a, that is uh, a shame and an annoyance. But the effect of UC Berkeley for the discussion, for the debate around higher education was fantastic. Then what? And no, I, the it was fantastic for Milo. Is, is, that, is, that people, is that people got hurt. And that's the only bad thing about it. And that, of course, is a product of the violent left. Oh, I, I agree with that, but hold on a second. It was, I, I think you're confusing what's good for Milo and what was necessarily good for the country. I get your point. I get your point that sometimes a loss can be a victory in the long run. But, but let's look what's happened since. Ann Coulter wasn't allowed to speak there. So, so, yeah, so how the, was that a victory? Coverage, and look at the coverage it got, which it never would have without me. And no, now which was good for Ann. I'm sure Ann was thrilled, so. too. And so I'm coming back, and I'm bringing Anne, and we're having Berkeley Free Speech Week. And now, if you want to know the answer to your question, I will tell you, and this is the first time I think that we're releasing this information, we warned UC Berkeley that if they did not actively participate, cooperate, help us, go out of their way to help us stage Free Speech Week, that we would turn it into Free Speech Month. Um, They are cooperating. What does they that mean? They're cooperating with me when they did. Well, they, they told Ben Shapiro they didn't have a room available for him. They've told me they have five on five consecutive nights for my free speech week in September. So UC Berkeley has, so far at least, caved to the pressure that they deserve to receive for stifling conservatives. I think they've made the decision that this free speech week is going to be so high profile, it's going to involve so many conservatives, comes the week that all their freshmen start. Is going to involve everybody they've ever tried to stifle that they've just got to sit back and let it happen and hope that people don't pay too much attention to it. Because the, I think what they've realized, like Antifa, you know, um, is that their, their efforts so far have been counterproductive to their own cause. Look at, the, look at how Antifa has been since, you know, maybe inauguration where they realized that their tactics were turning people away from their cause, not towards it. So what they do now is they threaten to do outrageous things like go and urinate on the graves at Gettysburg, but they never show. Look right. at how pa- look at how placid and how absent from public life Antifa has been. Well, the only headlines we hear about them now are the occasional conviction. You know, I think the the teacher at um, what is her name Yvette Falaka, 
I think, who is a teacher, a member of, by any means necessary, she doesn't identify as a member of Antifa, but of course she's part of the same nexus, um, has, you know, just, was just, was just uh, I think, indicted for felony rioting or something like that. School teacher, you know, who, who went on TV and said that she was very happy that my, my speech was stopped and that violence was an appropriate response to my ideas, right? A school teacher. Those are the effects in America of what I have done, and, and I think also of the Trump presidency. And I think it's clear, very, very clear, that the change in, pub, you know, in, in, in the public's mind is having an effect on the tactics of the left. They're realizing that violent responses to political ideas, that violence as a response to speech doesn't go down very well with the public, doesn't go down very well with voters. Well, and poll voters numbers, are unfortunately, go are going in our, in, against us on this, Milo. Poll numbers are... Well, I think there are other reasons why the Trump presidency might be polling low. I don't, I don't think they, they have anything to do with free speech. But what your original question was, why I like the guy. And the main reason is that. The second reason is that I am a, you know, a nationalist conservative, believes in the nation state, I think, you know, I think countries should have borders. And so uh, he hasn't done anything really to... He's done nothing. On the wall yet. Well, <laughs> nothing. Is that not dis- are you not disappointed well, by there not being them. a wall, Milo? Come on, be honest. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I've said, and I've said so perfectly, clearly, I've said so perfectly honest, uh, honestly and forthrightly. Do you feel as if you were conned there? Were you conned by the wall? Were you conned? Well, if he doesn't make any effort to build it throughout his entire presidency, then yes, I will call him a con man, or I will say that I was very disappointed in him, or something along those lines. But, you know, when he lays the first brick of the wall, he's, he's fine by me. And, and on it's not going to happen. Do you want to make sure that we get, well, they got some money approved for it recently, didn't they, a few days ago? Uh, um, in theory, when, but that's a, um, a drop in the bucket. Well, I don't think either of us know, actually. So let's just leave it at that. Um, we're not, neither of us know whether it's going to be I know you got conned. Year or whatever. Well, you know, An- like Ankles is uh, tweeting every day her wall updates, and I look forward to that, to that situation changing. Let's see. Let's see. I certainly hope it does, because if it doesn't, there's no way he's going to get reelected. And if, if it doesn't, he doesn't deserve to be reelected. So you can have that one from me, okay? Now, if, you know, on the gay question, I do want to make, it, make this point clear. I was on... A gay radio show in South Florida last night, and this guy basically came out as a conservative. You know, the, the host of this of this gay radio show in South Florida, um, and and, he, and and I well, my argument really was was there's a significant portion of the gay population who care more about results than words and pandering, and I think um, you can see some signs. They don't really do the polling in America. I don't think they dare to, but. You see some signs. The last election in the UK, 50% of gay men said they were going to vote for the right-wing party. And the, the Guardian reported this as sort of shock and horror, you know, how, how gay people could possibly be so ungrateful and stupid, whatever the gay version of Uncle Tom is. Um, you know, they, 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 they was responded with horror to this. But my insight, and I could be wrong about this, but my hunch is that there's a significant number of gay people who are really, really worried about Islam and prefer a president who takes action over one who just spits out words. So they, are much, they would much prefer a president floating ideas about a Muslim ban than they would a, than a, a president funded by Saudi Arabia that murders people, that panders to gays with elaborate statements about, you know, um, gay pride and all the rest of it, but does nothing to actually stop gay people being murdered. There's a big difference between the Democrat approach, which is pander to minority groups in the hope of forming a coalition large enough to get them into the White House and Trump. I mean, I'm not. So you have no problem, Milo. You have no problem with Attorney General Sessions recent decrees uh, involving uh, gay rights and employment uh, situations. You have no concerns about that. I have some concerns about a lot of what goes on in the Republican Party about Trump. Particularly, I think he's the most gay friendly and pro-gay 
presidential candidate and president in history, but he is sitting atop uh, a hybrid government of establishment conservatives, of which Sessions is clearly, is clearly one in some respects, and Pence is clearly one. Um, and, you know, I don't, I, I don't know about Pence. You know, I like to make jokes about his, his gay conversion, whatever. I think most of it's just memes, really. I'm not sure. I, think, I think it was basically a states' rights issue that got presented by the left as him being a homophobe. I don't know how true any of that stuff is, right? Um, obviously, Trump is sitting atop a kind of hybrid administration, partly old-school GOP holding their nose and, you know, holding him with tweezers and hoping to just get through it, and partly, you know, the true believers. And, you know, the true believers seem to be, I mean, that, 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 that populist, nationalist, Trumpian, mischievous, trolly young youth movement, they don't give a stuff if you're gay or not. Steve Bannon doesn't care if you're gay or not. He doesn't care about stuff like that. Um, you know, he, he's, as, as, you, as, you, as you asked me earlier, isn't, isn't he the one that, uh, that kick-started your career? Yeah. Um, you know, and I think, I think the, the, the Trump wing, let's say, of the Republican movement, of this, the young conservative libertarian uh, uh, instinct, tendency, this new thing in American politics that everyone is struggle, struggling to define, I think is very uh, laissez-faire about social issues and about um, you know, sexuality. I don't think they care too much. As for some of the older establishment Republicans, I probably would not like very much at all. Uh, I'm curious, you mentioned a radio show you did over the weekend uh, in South Florida. Was this the one where former Congressman Mark Foley, who also is gay, uh, ended up backing out of? And what was that all about? I think so. I mean, I don't know who he is. Um, I don't know anything about him. You don't know who uh, Mark Foley is, really? I mean, I've heard his name. I'm not really that interested in politics. People ask me about politics. I prefer to talk about culture. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a free speech guy. You ask me questions about what I'm interested in. I want to tell you that I think that the most interesting story of the year is the Miley Cyrus Dolce & Gabbana fight, um, you know, because I think that tells you far more about the direction America is headed than questions about Jeff Sessions and gays and all the rest of it. I had not people heard are, that people, theory. I had not heard that are, theory. People are obsessed with asking me political questions, right. but I'm, I, I consider myself a cultural commentator, right. and I don't start these discussions. I'm just constantly okay. like forced into them by interviewers. Um, no, I mean the the um, the, this, uh, the Foley guy. I mean I've heard his name. Um, I think that he was. I think the real reason for him backing out was that he didn't want his little scandal with. So he had like a, some sort of sexting scandal with a younger man Pages, or something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and and I I think that he didn't want that to come out on the radio because there were because he knew that there'd be questions about my little hiccup in February or something like that. And he the way he played it was to say, Oh, my own office is just a troll and there's nothing we could possibly talk about, blah, 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 blah. But I think what really was the case was that he knew if he came for me in the interview that I I, I would have done my research and, and would bring it up. Okay. So I have a feeling that that's the real reason, but I didn't really I didn't, Fair I didn't enough. really know who the guy is. All right, let's get to other stuff. Uh, you've mentioned Ann Coulter a couple times uh, during... The queen, the goddess. Right, see, now, this is why I'm skeptical of you. Because, and I've always felt instinctively that, okay, Milo decided to be the gay British funnier Ann Coulter. As as a as a career brand, I don't think I'm funny. I don't think I'm funnier than Ann Coulter. I think she's hysterical. But go on. No, I think she's funny, but I think you're funnier. Uh, and and in part of it, by the way, part of it's the British accent. You do realize that the British accent is worth at least ten to twenty IQ points in this country, right? <laughs> you do understand that, right? I do, and I also know that because I grew up watching um, British, uh, a particular kind of camp British TV. There's a sort of language, and it's you know it's sort of the Dame Edna drag queen kind of. Camp arch-camp British language that's particularly attractive to Americans. It's not just British, but it's that sort of arch, 
snobbish, upper-class, um, kind of withering waspishness about some of my mannerisms that I know are, is particularly attractive to Americans. Um, so, yes, I'm, I'm well aware of that. But, right. but I, have, I have other failings that to make up for. So I, I, think, I think I come out. Okay, but see, see, I think Anne is mostly a capitalist. That Anne is mostly, not entirely, but mostly about her. And so for you to be grouped in with Anne, I presume, oh, okay, Milo must be the same way. Am I not? Well, I don't think Anne and I have very much in common. Um, other than, I mean, we, we believe in some of the same, I, I guess, politics, but she's a political pundit. I'm like a cultural figure. I mean, I, 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 think, she's, I think she's fantastic. She's a friend, and I, I right. think she's brilliant and hysterical and, and clever, and, I, and her books are wonderful, and people who hate her generally haven't read her books. Um, I don't think we have that much in common, um, and I don't, and I also don't think I'm as funny as so. her. Okay, uh, I would also add in there that you add a little bit uh, of what I would describe as being like Tommy Laren. What do you make of her? Ah, uh, I she, not, <laughs> no, I don't. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about Tommy Laren. Um, I. What do you make of her? She, what do you make? Of I her? think she got. I don't know. I think she got maneuvered into saying something I don't know if she believed or not with the view, and she... You know what? I, I, feel, I feel for her because I think she's been badly managed. I, I think she, if, she'd had a, if she'd had a really fantastic manager, um, I think she'd be in a, in a different position now. But I think she allowed herself to be pushed into a position that was obviously going to end her career. Um, I'm glad she's back because I think she's powerful and fantastic. And her, her, like, her final thoughts video did like 10 million views in a day. They, people love her. And I think she's beautiful and and, and uh, you know, I, I think there, she has many virtues, but I, I think she's being badly managed for, from a professional point of view. Right, since since we're doing this, uh, I guess mini game of who do, what do you think about the, this particular person? You've mentioned you me so much trouble. Uh, you, you've mentioned Ben Shapiro, um, and, no, and and I don't know her. Oh goodness! <laughs> now see see Milo. See, this is part again where I go. Okay, Milo, what are you doing? I mean, at your opening of your book party, yeah, you, you had midgets with yarmulkes <laughs> pretending to be Ben Shapiro. Now, how is that? How is that helpful? How is that helpful? Why did it got to be helpful? It was supposed to be entertaining. I'm an but, entertainer. I'm not. I, I'm not a political pundit, and you can't okay. interview me like one, because it, well, of course your questions aren't going to make any sense. It wasn't supposed to make a specific point. It was supposed to be entertaining, and it was. Everybody knows I've had a bit of a in-and-out kind of like frenemy relationship with Ben Shapiro. Everyone knows it sort of evolved into a spat when he went nuts over Trump, and it was funny for me to make fun of him. It was just entertaining, and that's all it was. And all that's right. all everybody knows it was. I don't, you know, there's, there's nothing more to say about it. Well, actually, there's a lot more to say about the larger issue because you just said something very important. I'm an entertainer, all right? I'm fine with yeah. that. I am fine with you being an entertainer. But why not be a stand-up comedian instead of being perceived and trying to sell yourself at, at parts as a political commentator? See, see, I don't try to sell myself. No, but you absolutely do. Your book is called Dangerous. If the book, if if you're a, if you're just an entertainer, you're not dangerous because you're not being taken well, I mean, I think, seriously. I think if you look, I think if you look at the names of the Netflix comedy specials, you will find they are far closer to the title of my book than the title, let's say, of any National Review or, you know, uh, Fox News commentators' books. 
Might, the dangerous sounds exactly like a stand-up tour name, doesn't it? Um, dangerous but sounds precisely you're like. Trying like to be, but of, you're trying to have it both ways, Milo. I, I, have a, well, I don't understand why. The, I don't understand why one cannot be an entertaining, funny, interesting, complex it, public figure and be and and it and and. I don't understand why. It's where you draw the line. It's, it's where you draw the line. Like, for instance... Well, why must I choose? Why must I choose between being funny and talking no, 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 about no, politics? A, why can't I do both? That's people a straw man. Do both. That's a you straw let, man. No, 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 no. You let, no, you know. The, the, the people on the left have done it for decades. Look at Jon Stewart, right? Nobody on the left ever called Jon Stewart out for it. He called himself a comedian, yes. but he was the most influential political commentator in the country. I don't remember a single interviewer ever calling him out for it, except for Bill O'Reilly. We, we are held to a different standard, and that sucks, but no, that's, that's the reality, and we should true. live with that reality unless we can change true, people. That's not true anymore, and okay. social media has changed all let, of that. Let me give you Look another what example. When Sarah Silverman, who is a comedian, Sarah Silverman says something that is factually untrue. She gets ripped apart on Twitter, and it damages her career. I don't believe. I just don't believe. I think, I think being a public figure in America in 2017 with Twitter and with Facebook and with how, you know, the, the, I think the lines are blurring. I think it's more complicated than you're making out. Journalists have this, like, kind of earnest, like, haughty opinion of their own career that is not shared by anyone except other journalists. Americans don't care about your, oh, we're held to a higher standard. They hate you, and they think you lie all day. Right? They think you lie all day long and you will never change. Right? They believe comedians more than they believe you. Okay? So, so the, the distinctions that you're making between the high ethical standards of journalists, which are not believed by the majority of the country, are, me- are meaningless. Right? What, what I seek to do is tell the truth and do so in an, in an entertaining way. If you want to spend you know, large portions of your time trying desperately to define me, that's on you. I see no reason why I should do it. <laughs> I don't feel that desperate about it, frankly, Milo, but I am trying to understand you. And, and let me give you an example, all right? Because to me, it's all about where you draw the line. Uh, sure. I guess in the last couple of days, you posted on your Facebook page, which is wildly popular. I mean, it's crazy how popular you are on Facebook. Uh, you posted a video of uh, basically mocking Venezuelan protesters getting blown away by the socialist government there, and you posted it something along the lines of uh, blocking traffic has consequences. Now, that might be funny in a perverse way to some people, but here you are mocking people who you ought to be supporting who were getting badly damaged by these, by these thugs. So where well, nobody do, knows how, if they're badly damaged. I mean, the, the, no, no, nobody knows that. Um, did you see the video? The video certainly looked like it. <laughs> Maybe it does. I mean, look, the, the, point of, the point about it is, you know, it's funny, and I'm happy for people to talk about things. And look at the comments on the Facebook page. I'm, my intention, and there's nothing... And, and it isn't a cop-out to say my intention is to start discussion and conversation. It isn't, because that's always been the business of polemic. The best bit of journalism is not the investigative reporting, in my view. Sorry to break it to you. Um, <laughs> the, best bit of, the best bit of journalism has always been the polemic, the invective, and the, the provocation, because it requires a commitment to fact. And it requires a commitment to the truth, but it also takes you somewhere else and starts discussions. And whether we go back to the original, um, the, the, you know, the origins of some of the best polemical journalism in, you know, the Spectator in London in the 18, in the 17, the 1800s, or whether you look at, you know, provo- provocateurs and columnists and, and professional contrarians, you know, Christopher Hitchens, all the, gr- the great, I mean, those are the names in journalism you remember, you know? The Woodwards and Bernsteins are pretty thin on the ground in, people, in popular memory, but people remember the names of people who make them think and people who make them laugh. And there is quite clearly uh, a link, there's a nexus, there's some point of contact between really entertaining columnists 
who must tell the truth, but don't break much news, um, who make people think, make people reconsider things in a new way, and comedians. And the example I will give you is Bill Maher. And I think that if you just flip the politics and say, well, how about if you just think of Milo as the right-wing Bill Maher, all your questions dissolve. Yeah. I, I, and, and again, this goes back to the essence of this interview, which is why I'm conflicted about you. I've got a 15-year-old nephew who is one of your biggest fans, uh, but who thinks you're very, who, who takes you very seriously. And his political worldview is being molded in large part, which I didn't even know he had a political worldview, is being molded, <laughs> molded by you. And and so that that's part of my conflict here, because I do think... Well, I think people, the things that I talk about, of course, have a political dimension to them. So I talk about, you know, love, sex, death, money, race, religion. This stuff, all this stuff has a political dimension. So when I talk about those issues, people will assign my conclusions to a particular side of the political spectrum, and sometimes I do too. But like I said, you know, if you, if you think about, think of me as a current affairs entertainer who just doesn't have his TV show yet. And think of, you know, there are plenty of figures on the left like me. You're accusing me of something that you haven't really considered exists in a wide, in widespread fashion on the left. Which I, I know it, I know it does. I've accepted it. That's reality. Okay, but do you hate, that? Do you hate them just as much? Um, well, 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 I never said I hated you. I never said I hated you. Okay. But when did I say I hate you? Okay. What I'm suggesting to you is that the John Oliver, John Stewart, Bill Maher tradition on the left hasn't existed on the right until me. And... Now it does. I see no contradiction in them like I see no contradiction in me. Okay. Let's talk about one other person that we have actually in common, uh, although in very different times and in very different ways, Andrew Breitbart. Uh, it, mm-hmm. It's my view that uh, Andrew Breitbart, I know you're going to disagree with this, I think Andrew Breitbart would have been disgusted by Trump. I think he would have seen through him as a con man, and I think even he would have been disgusted by the whole fake news canard because Trump does it out of self-preservation and not out of substance, and it's, it's about him, and it's not about fighting the real war against media bias. What, what do you think Andrew would have thought about Trump? Well, um, I'm not going to evade your question, but I will frame it. I will just re- you know, respond fully and completely and precisely. Um, I have, you know, spent my uh, some of my career, you know, and some of the most important bits of my career at Breitbart. And I will tell you something that happens uh, regularly, which is that people, you know, everybody in the country claims they knew Andrew Breitbart. <laughs> and everybody in the country has an opinion on what he would have thought. But the only people I've never heard express an opinion about what Andrew would have thought was the people at Breitbart, the people who chose, uh, he chose to run the company for him. Okay. They don't talk like that because they have no idea, and neither does anybody No, else. because they have no incentive. And, and they have no incentive. No, no, I know have, people have, at Breitbart who agree with me but would never say it publicly because they'd get fired, fine. Milo. People have, all, people have all kinds of opinions, I'm sure, and people are allowed to have opinions. But I will tell you that the people at the top of that company, because they're the ones I work for, I, don't, I didn't deal with the foot soldiers, the people I worked for at Breitbart who ran the business, don't express themselves that way and never spoke like that. And at least not to me. I never heard them. I never heard so them you... talk like that. I never heard any of the other people at Breitbart talk like that. They never told me what Andrew would have done, said, or believed. So you don't want to now, express an opinion there are plenty on of that. people. Well, I never met the guy, okay. which means most okay. people don't realize. I right. never met him. Well, I didn't know him. And all I know about, and the, the thing that inspired me about from, from, from Andrew, and I learned about Andrew after I joined Breitbart. I didn't really know that much about him except as a sort of little name recognition right. when I joined the London outpost of Breitbart. Right. And later I started learning about the guy, and I was like, oh, wow, I really did fall on my feet and land at the right business. <laughs> I landed at the right outlet. This is exactly where I belong. I didn't realize 
how, how what a perfect fit it was until like I had already been working there for six months um, when I started to, to attract the attention of the U.S. editors. But the the, the essential thing that I take away from watching Andrew speak was his dedication to the destruction of the American media, of the, the left-wing uh, stranglehold mm-hmm. and the mainstream media. And that, was, that, that, is, that is the one great red thread running through everything he did. He, his entire career was dedicated to the destruction of the left-wing media. Right. Well, I think Trump's doing a pretty good job. And I think that Andrew may... I, I don't want to speculate because I've never met him. Okay, fair enough. Right. I think it's reasonable for me to, to decline... To, Fair enough. to say what somebody I never met would, 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 would speculate. Right. But somebody dedicated to the destruction of the American media could not have helped but be at least amused sure. by what Trump has done. To oh, them. I'm sure, he, I'm sure he'd say. be amused. There's no question about that. All right. All <laughs> at, right. a bare, at a bare minimum, he could have sat back and enjoyed it. Okay, fair enough. Now, in our last few moments here, and you've been generous with your time, and I appreciate that, I do want to ask you about what happened at Breitbart. Uh, because, Because sure. I think... I'm going to surprise some people here because even though, uh, well, like everything about you, I'm conflicted about it, but I, I'm going to defend you in part by what happened at Breitbart because for those who don't remember, uh, you left Breitbart because there was some old videos found of you talking about when you were sexually abused or in most people's minds sexually abused as a 13-year-old by a Catholic priest, and you made some statements that indicated that you didn't think it was a bad experience and that it could be beneficial to certain people, and that this was perceived as wrongly, in my view, as you saying that pedophilia is good, even though it Technically, you're talking about a febophilia, which is very different. And, and, and well, the, the broad contours of this are correct. Yes. Right. Okay. So, so you end up uh, leaving. And, uh, and by the way, is it fair to say you were forced out, or what, what, what would you? No, how no, would you no, describe no. The was the nature about, of your leaving? Well, the thing about Breitbart is they don't leave people on the field. Um, they always go to bat for for their people. Um, and I don't. You know, it's the most ferociously loyal. If you're if you're loyal to them, they will be loyal to you. Um, and and I always was. I was. Always but were you a team forced player. out? Were you forced out? No, no. What I'm saying. And what so I'm then, why did you leave? Is, well, because I was always planning to anyway. Because I was starting to become too expensive for Breitbart. I was be- already becoming a star. Look <laughs> Wait a minute, you left because bill. they were paying you too much? What? what? No, <laughs> no. I was planning to leave perhaps six months or a year after I ended up leaving because uh-huh. it was already becoming obvious that Breitbart wasn't going to be able wasn't going to be able to sustain me and and take me to where I wanted to go. I want to be, you know, I want, I want a TV show. Breitbart's not equipped to get me there. Of course it's not. It's not that kind of company. It doesn't have anyone on staff. So, hold on a second. So you, about doing so, oh, come on, it's Milo. Not a star, it's not a star factory. It made you and a I star. Have, it made you a star. No, no, well, no, and no disrespect to my former colleagues. I made me a star and I did it with a lot of my own okay. money. And most, okay. you know, the first half right. of that tour, of my college tour was funded by right. me. Okay. Now, Milo, Milo, so, hold on a second. With the idea that you just happened to decided to leave Breitbart just before you're having a book come out, I'm calling bullshit on. I mean, you don't leave your platform uh, just before you're having a book come out. Why should I believe well, that? Well, as I said, I, well, you're entitled to believe it or not believe it. I made the decision to leave because I thought it was the right thing to do for my colleagues because they were dealing with nothing but okay. Milo BS. All right, morning, that's noon, different. And night. That's different. And I, I, I made the decision to leave because they had stuck by me through controversy after controversy, controversy. They had invested in me. They had got me to a place where I believed I could survive on my own when I left, and I wanted to leave anyway. And I knew that I would just have to bring my plans forward and and you know and and, and speed things up. But I was already, of course, planning. I, I, I had pitched them a year and a half before that, or maybe a year before, 
to spin myself off as my own separate business unit, you know, like under the Breitbart banner, but my own business unit with its yeah. own staff. I had, I had asked. I had pitched them that a year previously. Okay. So when this happened, I thought two things. One, this is not fair on my colleagues. This is not fair on the people who have done so much for me because they're getting tarred with, you know, people, people are calling them things that are completely ridiculous and, and the company's paralyzed and not able to do anything else. And two, maybe I should just go anyway because I've wanted to for so long and I need to, I, you know, and Breitbart, I mean, you know, I pay now $750,000 a year in security bills. Breitbart can't afford that. Um, you know, they couldn't afford so much. They couldn't afford a lot of what I needed to function, given what was happening around college campuses. You're spending um, three was- quarters of a million dollars a year on security. Yes, that's okay. my current bill. Now it wasn't that much in I, February, I th- but it is. You know, it is, wow. go- it is going that, up every that, time. That, I, I if true, that's insane. Okay, wow. Yeah, that's insane because uh, what the left does okay. is they, they, they make. The left, you know, this, this is the, this is the purpose. This is what people don't understand about Antifa, about the Black Bloc activists. Their okay. objective okay. is to make it not scary to be a conservative, but just too expensive. Okay. I got it. I get it. Okay, it's okay. Too, it's too, right. let's get back to the right part thing for a second. It's complicated and expensive to be a conservative in public life because your audience is going to get beaten up when you're, and your talk's going to get shut down by Molotov cocktails. Right? I, that's the that's the objective. And and they have succeeded in closing down people with less money than I have. I get but it. fortunately, I have more resources. Right. Now, as far as Breitbart goes, I left because I, it wasn't fair to my right. uh, colleagues. I'll buy that part. I wanted, and because I already wanted to anyway. I'll buy that part. But let's get to what actually happened. because And this is the part where I'm going to mildly defend you, and I want to seek some more understanding. My view of what occurred here is that before you became, quote-unquote, a star, you were doing shtick on those podcasts where you were per, per being perceived later, once you were a star, through the prism of the fact that you were now a star, oh my God, mm-hmm. he's promoting pedophilia. I think you were doing basically stand-up comedy using your own experience, your own potential pain, if you will, to create a potentially entertaining or funny story. Am I right about that? Yes, you're absolutely right about that. And the way you know that is looking at what the words are used, which were... For instance, the one that sticks in people's head is if it, if it hadn't been for, for Father Michael, I wouldn't give nearly such good head. Um, it, you know, it's quite obvious what's going on there, you know, and your, your interpretation of it is exactly correct. and is exactly my, exactly my feeling about it. Okay, but see, this goes to the whole theme of the interview, my conflict again. See, part of me goes, all right, that's an injustice because the guy's getting hung over something that's being totally misperceived. And I will, I think you know enough about me to know, I will rush to the defense of anybody that I believe, even if I don't like them, if I believe that they are being unfairly attacked. However, well, I do the same thing, and I've stuck up for lefties who have been, uh, I've stuck up for lefties repeatedly in my career whose free speech has been imperiled, even though I hate them. Okay, but see, but this is where I was going to go with, with it next. Well, part of why I was conflicted about it was, well, wait a minute, isn't this the price Milo's paying for blurring this entertainment versus commentary line, because if he yes, can't it, even yes, tell... it absolutely is. And to take you back to an earlier example, look at Bill Maher. Bill Maher, as he often does, tries to, to, tries to take credit for my difficulties at the time, and lo and behold, a video of his surfaces from the 1990s in which he makes a joke also on this subject. And Bill Maher was the subject, you know, was the subject of a week of, um, of difficulties because... He, too, in the 90s, had said something that he intended as a joke that his, that his political and cultural adversaries 
represented and misrepresented as a sincere statement of whatever. And the right were just as wrong to do that to him as the left and the establishment right were to do it to me. And yes, that is the price that you pay if you attempt to straddle that line between entertainment and journalism. But that is the, that is the challenge of what I do for a living. It's the challenge of what Bill Maher does for a living. One of the what things... John Oliver does for a living. What, what John Stewart used to do for a living. It's exactly, it's exactly the, the, the difficulty. And I, but, and I, I, I also think it's not just pure entertainment figures, but you see this on Fox, too. There's quite a big, and you'll know this from the way that the company's structured, there's quite a big red line between Fox's news operation and some of their flagship shows, which mm-hmm. are kind of classified differently internally, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know like, like, like Bill O'Reilly's show used to be, for instance, yeah? Right. Um, you know, where, where, let's say he was allowed to, to rant and express his view in a, in a way that might not have been published as an op-ed by the, the news division of the corporation, right? And I don't think it's any secret that, that that's the way that Fox operates. You know, there is a sort of entertainment and news um, structure, uh, you know, sort of two-part structure at, at Fox News. Um, I don't think that's news to anybody. It's a more subtle distinction than, let's say, 60 Minutes or Meet the Press and right. Real right. Time with Bill Maher. It's a more subtle distinction, but it's still there. Yeah. And I think it exists at most of the other news stations, too. Yeah. You know, the morning, morning News, for instance. Morning News is primarily entertainment, not news-breaking. It's a way to sort of, you know welcome people into the day, wake them up a little bit, make them smile and get, get them off, you know, get, you know, something, something to pass the time over coffee. They talk about current affairs, but they're, you know, they're not like hard-nosed news breakers. They leave that for the evening bulletin. Got it. So I think the distinction you're making is, is I, I, just, I just don't think it's meaningful. Last thing on, on, well, last thing in totality, but last thing also on, on this whole issue of the controversy that led to you leaving Breitbart and Simon & Schuster uh, dumping your book. One of the things that surprised me most about what happened to you there was that when you told the story of your, again, what others would perceive as sexual abuse by a Catholic priest as a 13-year-old, based upon my experience, and you and I have talked about this uh, off-air in the whole Penn State scandal, that is usually like the ultimate force field protection in the media. Oh my gosh, you're a victim of sex abuse. We are hands off. We are to protect him at all costs and understand everything and everything he does. That card, that card didn't work for you at all. Were you surprised by that? Why? Well, I didn't play it as a card. I expressed myself. um, I understand that, but you understand. I I didn't, I didn't, you know, I didn't give that press conference with as much, um, strategic you know, thinking as you perhaps imagine that I did. I just explained myself for the perhaps, perhaps the first time anyone's ever seen me just, you know, apologize and explain myself in an unvarnished way because something tumbled out of my mouth I did not intend. And I said something, I said there was one particular sentence in those videos that, 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 that I did not mean. As for the rest of it, you know, if people don't like the fact that I make jokes about things that happen to me, they can go screw themselves. I don't care about them. Um, but, but there was one thing that tumbled out of my mouth I didn't mean, and that's what I apologize for. But, but why, didn't, why didn't the media... Uh, give you the same treatment. So would, they, would they have done that to Trump? Would they have done that to Steve Bannon? If Steve Bannon said, oh, I believe child abuse, and that's why I'm like I am? No, of course not. They would, they would absolutely make exceptions for people they consider to be dangerous political adversaries, even if those people are not strictly in politics like me. So I think there, is, there, are, perf- there are perfectly regular exceptions for the usual treatment of the media. It just depends if you're conservative enough. If you are sufficiently conservative, none of the usual, whether it's uh, identity politics defenses. Oh, it's a woman, so we'll let her get away with it. It's a black guy, so we'll let her get away with it. It's a fag, so we'll let her get away with it. None of the usual defenses work in one condition, and that is if you're sufficiently conservative. I agree with that. 
And uh, and with that, I, I think uh, you know you've given us more than an hour, and I really appreciate it. This has been uh, very interesting. Uh, by the way, uh, you have promised me. Uh, off the air that you will take a look at uh, my work on the Penn State case because I think you can be a very important voice for truth on that because of your unique experience and I'm going to hold yeah, you I to did, that. I do that and I will. No, I will. I will. Yeah. I'm interested. It's not. I will be honest with you. It's not something that I have looked deeply into, but I, I, I will send. I will uh, examine what you've sent me, and I will take a look at it because this is one thing that maybe it would be a nice resolution for me just speaking completely cynically and 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 self-interestedly it would be a nice resolution for me to be able to um to to rescue somebody from injustice in an arena in which I too have been in, you know involved in controversy i think right. it would be a poetic a poetic end to uh, a little hiccup in an otherwise uh, delightful career. So I will definitely look very closely at it. Milo uh, best of luck with the book Dangerous and let's keep in Thank touch. Thank you. Yeah, I would love that. Thanks so much, John. Take care. That'll do it for hour number two for this week's podcast. Make sure that you uh, share this via social media, Twitter, Facebook, what have you. It's the only way people will hear about uh, what we believe is a very important and unique source for the truth. And frankly, this interview, I think, was almost as good as last week's with Glenn Beck, maybe better, depending on your perspective. So please do that. And also do yourself a favor. And if you're one of those people who sleeps and when you do, you use sheets, pay attention to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.